he'd done a ton of shit, but he's bam, we're live. He's timely as all get out. <laughs> I try, I try, I try my best. How are you? Good. How are you, Ben? I'm good. I'm great. I'm excellent. Holy cow. Where do you start with a guy who's done so much? It's nuts. <laughs> you know, it's uh, I've just survived a long time. That's all it is. So I keep adding more and more. So. Happy birthday, by the way. 60 years. You're five days away. I am. You're right. You look me up. I'm, <laughs> I'm showing off. I'm showing off, Ben. I'm totally showing off. I can't off. pretend that I'm 27 then because uh, you know how old I am. But yeah, yeah, my birthday is February 7th. And usually there's a big snowstorm. So we'll see if it happens again for us. There is one coming. But yeah. You guys, um, this is going to be a tough one for me. This guy has done so much. And what's even crazier about how much he's done is he's kind of just on the launching pad of life. It, there's a really good big picture story here. His his career is about his, he's done enough to stop and his career is about to explode. It's like um, he was the best caterpillar in his class and now he's about to turn into a butterfly and it's going to be cool. And his wife and his kids are going to be crazy proud of him. I, are your parents still alive, Ben? My parents are doing great, actually. They're down in Florida. like uh, Of course, of course. They're, to be. <laughs> uh, they're, 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 they're you know, doing very well right now. So, yes, everybody's around. Yeah. yeah, everyone's gonna be so proud, man. You, you, uh, it's nuts. So, so basically, I came across the the book Bitcoin Billionaire, and then I'm like, oh, and I was talking. That's Matt Souza over there. He's the he's the producer of the show. I was like, oh, Matt, let's get this guy um uh on the show. This is a really cool book. And then as I start researching you, I'm like, holy cow! The Facebook movie, uh, social. What, what was it? A social network. Social network. Yeah. Yeah. I started watching that. I watched the like first hour and a half of that last night. I'm like, the, this movie was made based on this guy's first book. And then as I dug into you more, I'm like bringing down the house. Holy cow. And yeah. then, and then from there, I'm like, as I I just sat on one of those exercise bikes for the last two days <laughs> and just watched podcast years, man, you've done a lot. You wrote nine books just in one year, just to start off your whole, your, your yeah. writing obsession. When I was a struggling. So when I graduated from college and I knew I wanted to be a writer, I locked myself in a room and I wrote, nine books that year um and they were all crap none of those <laughs> books um but uh in my career i've published i think 23 or 24 books but previously wow. i had written nine books in a year out of desperation and my parents basically said we're not going to let you starve uh but if in one year you haven't done something that shows you're going to make it in this career you have to go to law school <laughs> that was pretty much the fear of law school was what made me lock myself <laughs> right um, so yeah it was a it was a crazy kind of process of getting my ten thousand hours in or whatever you want to say to get to the point where i could write a book that that was published which by the way also bombed i didn't have a successful book until my sixth book which was the mit blackjack story um which became the movie 21 so it was a it was a good you know long even though I was really young, I had I had written a lot before my first book was successful. One hundred rejections before you got your first book published, and and you, uh, you, I had I had a I have a friend. His name well, I use that term loosely. I, I, <laughs> I have a guy I used to do a podcast with named Matt Fraser. He's the fittest man on the planet um, five times in a row, wow. and uh, he's a he's a freak of nature. But he won second place. And he was so angry and he hung his second place. And to this day, he calls his second place medal his favorite medal of all time because it was the one that drove him to win the, the title five times in a row after that. Yeah. Is there something like that going on? You yeah. That same pathology? 
I had gotten actually 190 rejection slips before I sold my first book and I would tape them to the walls. So my original writing layer apartment was just covered in, it looked like a serial killer. It was all angry <laughs> letters and everyone I've worked with since I have a rejection letter from. Um, so even when I get a new agent, I'm like, Oh, here's when you rejected me. And you know, whatever year and every publisher I've worked for and every, you know, so I definitely was like a, you know, a Spider-Man villain. <laughs> Full of but I think that that's the romantic period of your writing career when you're just getting rejection after rejection, because at some point it becomes more of a business. But at that point, it's like you're, a, you know, an artist living in your room trying to break in. So it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was intense. It was intense. How do you know that you have the chops for it? By that, I mean, I can go out in my front yard and I can try to learn how to ride a unicycle with my kids and I can try over and over and over. And I know somewhere it's going to happen. I'm going to get on the unicycle. I, I can cultivate the balance, the skill. I, I, I just don't trust that about writing for some reason. Am I wrong? I just feel like whole, it seems so much scarier than a unicycle to keep going, especially after nine books. Aren't you just ready to put a gun in your mouth? You're just yeah, like, what you the have fuck? To be delusional. You have to really and truly believe despite what everyone around you is saying, despite <laughs> right. by everyone. And you have to remember, so I graduated from college at a point when everyone was going to Wall Street, you know, and all my friends were like making tons of money right out of college. And I was sitting there writing and rejection, writing rejection, and everyone thought I was crazy. So you have to be deluded to the point where you believe that you are going to make it. That just, and, and, I, and, there, and when I look back at those early books, they were not good. So uh, it was truly delusional to think that I could get there. Um, but it's that it's almost a religious belief in yourself. Um, and I don't know where, you know, when I speak to high school kids, I'm always like, you know, you have to decide that this is what you want to do. This is really who you are. And this is all you do. And I tell them to watch the Terminator and the point where the, the, she's describing what a Terminator is. And it's like, this is what he does. This is all he does. And he will not stop. That's the mentality you need. But I also put a time limit on it. So basically, you know, give it five years. If you don't show some success in those five years, then you can do it on the side and get a different job because it'll eat you up. I mean, the, you know, there's, there's, there's millions and millions of stories of people who, who just, you know, wrote themselves and wrote and wrote and never broke through because there's a lot of luck too. There's a lot of sort of, wall climbing and you know so it's a mix of things but you have to have true belief in that this is what you were meant to do um and um i was lucky because it started early like i knew since i was 12 years old that i wanted to be a writer so it was just a matter of getting there um as opposed to people figure out what they want to do later in life and and, and it's probably harder do, do you know this book um do you know this author named stephen mitchell he's um he wrote uh, – he, tra he translates a lot of stuff. He translated the Tao Te Ching. He's, okay. married, he's married to another uh, famous like self-help lady. I'm trying to remember her name. Her big thing is who would you be without this thought? She has like the four steps. Do you know who I'm talking about? I, um, I, I vaguely know what you're talking about. I haven't read uh, – or if I have, I don't know that I have. But yeah, I, I don't yeah. – so, so you have this guy, Lao Tzu, who, who – wrote the greatest self-help, in my opinion, the greatest self-help book of all time. And then Stephen Mitchell translated it. You know, he, he has the, Lao Tzu has the famous sayings, like I'm pointing at the moon and you're staring at my son. Uh, I'm pointing at the uh, moon and you're staring at my hand. Right, right. Or um, all problems must flourish before they come to an end. I mean, just, and, and, and he writes a lot in like paradoxes. And so like, if you understand what he's saying, then you know, you're not getting it. Right. <laughs> um, 
and and then there's these just fucking just completely fucking horrible self-help books that just completely miss the point on leading <laughs> down the people of fucking oppression and um and they're crazy popular yes uh, how um how do you know that like maybe th these books that you're saying aren't good that aren't good or are not great but just there's you're surrounded by I, I apologize to say this but morons right no i mean i think that you when you write a book it's interesting so i love what i i i'm, I'm delusional and when i write a book i'm always like this is great this is going to be awesome um but there are points when you write a book and you realize that you caught something or that there was some magic there that came out of you somehow and you can judge yourself i think i think i can judge uh, there's something in my early books that I love and, and there's always like, oh, this was fun and I get what I was doing here. But it wasn't until I really started to figure out my voice that I knew I was writing stuff that was going. And, and then still there are books that don't sell the way I think they should. I've certainly written books that went out there that I think should have been this huge bestseller and just sold, you know, 50,000 copies or whatever. And, and, and that happens a lot. But when I look back at the, when I was, you know, training myself, to be a writer, I can tell what I was doing wrong then. Um, so now when I write a book, it's not always going to be a home run, but at least I know the quality is to the point where if someone picks it up, they're getting their money's worth. Um, so yeah, I, I think you can judge yourself a little bit, um, but you're right. I don't, I don't take what the critics say as important or, or, you know, when a book comes out and it doesn't sell well, I'm bummed that it didn't sell well, but it doesn't mean that the book was bad. There are tons and tons of great books that just, for whatever reason, didn't explode. Um, and I'm always, you know, sometimes I write a book and I'm like, this this is going to be huge. This is going to be enormous. And, you know, for whatever reason, it sells 30,000, 50,000 copies. And, and that's what it does. Um, so, you know, you have to be okay with that. Um, before we go any further, and I forget, uh, our sponsor is barbelljobs.com. Okay, go there. And now before I forget <laughs> this, um, he, uh, Ben... Do I, am I pronouncing your last name right? Mesrick? Yes, that is correct. Okay. I stole it from another podcast guy. I heard him say it, and then I wrote it out the way, the way it sounds. <laughs> M-E-Z hyphen R-I-C-K, Mesrick. Um, uh, ben has a new book coming out on February 22nd. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Audible. Can you get it where I get my audiobooks? Can you get it at Apple? Yes, you can get it at Apple. Yes. And um, I, I think, do we have a link to the Amazon? Yeah, well, oh, yeah. Yeah, the Midnight Ride. That's it. Two twenty two twenty two, with with crazy crazy uh, reviews on the back. People really really love the um, book. This is your twenty fifth book that's been published. I think so. Yeah, I lose track sometimes, but I think that's right. I've done a lot of different. Most of my I'm known for nonfiction, so most of my big books were sort of nonfictional books, like the founding of Facebook and twenty one. Um, but this is a thriller, like in the style of Da Vinci Code. Um, it's a uh, thriller that takes place in, in and around Boston. It goes back to, you know, it starts present day with a card counter who uncovers a mystery going back into the revolutionary times. So it's a departure for me. So I'm hoping that people like it. Um, the movie is I sold to Steven Spielberg and Amblin. And um, so we're working on the movie as well. So hopefully this will be a, a start of a whole new thing for me. I want it to become a franchise book and do multiple ones. And, and I'm hoping people take to it. So it should be fun. Do you hear that? Like that? There you go. Back to what I was saying. This guy is a space shuttle on the launch pad with the thrusters on full blast. And you have another book that you did with your wife that you're also hoping um, has a similar journey, a kid's book. Oh, yeah. My wife and I write a kid's series together, um, and uh, it's called The Charlie Numbers. It's middle grade 
fiction. So if you have a kid at like seven to, I guess, 13 or whatever the ages are for middle grade, um, it's kind of like those old Encyclopedia Brown books that, that we used to use. We used to yes, use. yes. You know, math, science, whiz kids in, in uh, grade school who figure out things. Um, and so uh, book four in that series is coming out next year. Um, and then uh, and then I have this NFT project that I don't know if you are aware of um, that I've been working on called the Ben Mesrick Project, which actually has been kind of exploding in, in, in recent days. So I've been really psyched about that. Um, yeah. My, my, so I, I read Bitcoin Billionaire, and I thought I I I've, I've, I downloaded the app. I watch a lot of UFC. That's the thing where the guys it's like dudes fight in their underwear. Do you know right. that sport? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, and and they were they were sponsored by something like Crypto.com. So I downloaded the app like like a good uh, drone, and I and I just bought like sixteen hundred dollars worth of crypto, and I started just watching this right, just watching it, watching it, watching it. And I kind of figured out what what cryptocurrency was. Um, it was kind of like what I thought it was: imaginary money. And yes, um, but then I read your book, and so my mom would ask me what crypto was, and I would try to explain it to her. In this book, Bitcoin Billionaire, for anyone who doesn't know what crypto is and wants to get a better handling of it, I highly recommend you read this book. It is not the point of the book. It is not the point of the. I don't think so. But when you get to the end, you'll know what crypto is. Yeah. You'll have like an understanding. And I was like, I was like, wow, this was, this killed like three birds with one stone. I found a guy for my podcast. I enjoyed the reading uh-huh. and I, uh, and I learned what, more what crypto was. That's awesome. Yeah. Bitcoin billionaires is the story of the Winklevoss twins and their rise from being like the bad guys in the social network to being worth billions of dollars in Bitcoin. And so I, I told the sort of story of where Bitcoin came from and, but it's really a thriller. Um, and Bitcoin is what led me, you know, into the crypto you know, down that crypto tunnel, just like you did as well, and 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 to the NFT stuff. Um, but yeah, it's. I think you know, um, a lot of people were inspired by that book to to buy Bitcoin and hopefully did well, depending on when you bought the book. Um, and uh, and it, you know, it's it's a it's a brand new thing that I think is going to change all our lives over the next few years. I, I've heard you say that a lot about the um, Winklevoss twins. Yeah, Winklevi, you can call them. That's the Winklevi. And so last <laughs> night at 9.30, I started the social network. Yeah. And so I, I have to tell you, every um, I'm, I'm a, I, I CrossFit. I was an executive over at CrossFit Inc. I started there when there were 300 gyms, and I was fired when there were 15,000 gyms when it was sold to uh, – and you know my boss got canceled. By the way, that was one of the things. After I learned more and more who you are, I'm like, maybe I should use this time to pitch him on the CrossFit movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, crossfit book or was it just a big article i remember reading that just book. an article just yeah. b- basic basically these three uh, and i say this with all with all love and and non-bias these three complete shithole rags the new york times <laughs> business insider and gq amongst others got together and, and started some just malicious crazy shit in in the end the founder left and is richer than god and the people who bought it the the and we still don't know exactly who bought it but the people who bought it are stuck with a really big problem on their hands because crossfit was the hell's angels and the purchasers thought that they were buying harley davidson and there's a big difference between an activism group and uh a motorcycle manufacturer but it was very easy to confuse the two from the outside yeah but anyway the it would be a great 12-part series on netflix like the oj simpson movie there's lots of Mm -hmm. sex drugs and rock and roll and tons (laughs) of just really good stuff that's Mm -hmm. apropos to the pandemic that we're in because not a single crossfitter has died or will die because they don't eat added sugar or refined carbohydrates and they move daily. Yeah. 
So, yeah. So it's, 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 and that's what he told us for 15 years. Our cult leader, Greg Glassman, the tsunami of chronic disease is coming. Yeah. Wow. That's it is a good story there. You're right. It, it, yeah, good pitch. <laughs> and I, I, I was, I, maybe I'm manipulating you. I was the executive director no, of media I, there. So you know, I, I do think, you know, I, I, I don't know a lot about it, but I, I think that there's definitely a great story in that. And there's a lot of people, you know, who, who live by it. Right. There's, it's a yeah. Lot, you know, yeah. That's always a good thing for a television show. So I, I, I think it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, as I was um, getting, as we went through our, we started our hard times in 2018. We start, we had some struggles in the company. And as I was getting angry, I started writing for sort of like a cathartic release. And I laid out a hundred chapters and then I ended up writing a page single spaced every single night until I had this, this book. And I, I, it's one of those things like I really could never put out because it, it's, it's a scorch earth shit. Right. And, um, <laughs> And, uh, but it's funny cause I've shown some people and read it to some people and they're like, Hey, you should change the names and release this as a fucking mini series. I was like, wow. All right. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> it is the best shit though. That's you should stick with the names and just let it all burn. Uh, I gotta wait. I gotta wait till a couple of these people. I like, this guy, I like right? them too much. I like them That's too the much. That's the kind of stuff that I like though, is, you know, you, you really just name the names cause then it's fun. So I didn't think the wink. This is so yeah. going back. I I like the Winklevoss brothers and 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 our in your book Accidental Billionaire. Obviously, I like them. And in the Social Network, I like them. But I like them right away because they're on crew. And here's why: yeah. as a CrossFitter, we know that anyone who's on a rowing machine lives in the pain cave. That's what we call a place that most people will never go to in their life. And as a CrossFitter, we, we stare at the entrance of the pain cave every day, and some of us go in there. It's a very bad place, and it's not a place for pussies or weaklings or people who want to play the victim role. And so no matter how quote-unquote privileged you are, if you're on a rower, you're a madman. You, you are a special human being. Right. I mean, that's I mean, exactly right. And I tried to make that point in Bitcoin Billionaires in a big way. Is people write them off so easily. And they're like, oh, they're, you know, giant blonde guys. Their life has been easy. Everything is handed to them. But then you think about the fact that they're the Olympic rowers and what mm -hmm. actually goes into that. And I got to witness a little bit. You know, I hung out with them for six months or a year. And it's mm -hmm. unbelievable. Like, there's no way I could last a day doing what they do to stay at that level. It's just on a whole, you know, just from even just getting up when they get up and training the hours they train and eating what they eat. It's unbelievable, right? And so you start to think of them a little bit differently when you think that through. Um, certainly, they grew up wealthy and privileged in some ways that a lot of people would look at and be very jealous of. But nothing was handed to them, you know? You don't get into the Olympics because you're rich, right? That makes no difference at all. It really doesn't. I mean, maybe you have training facilities, but you're not going to get there unless you you really are intense. And they are intense guys, Um and I really like them. I, I find them fascinating. And, and we, with the social network, we treated them somewhat poorly. You know, we, they were drawn as just athletes, right? As the big dumb jocks who took on Zuckerberg, were chasing him around. You know, they were the kids from every, the bad guys from every 80s movie, right? You know, dressed as the skeletons chasing the karate kid around the gym, because that's how they look, you know, when you first meet them. Um, but in Bitcoin Billionaires, I think I was able to unwrap who they are a little bit more, which is really smart guys um, who, who really got a hold of two different revolutions at once. Yeah. I mean, these, you know, you look at the photos of them and you're like, okay, 
they have to be the bad guys, right? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, I didn't read um, Accidental Billionaire. I've only seen an hour and a half of Social Network, but I really, I, I yeah. thought, I mean, I, um, Mark Zuckerberg in the first hour and a half to, is not coming across like a good dude. Like he needs, someone needs to beat him up. Yeah, I mean, he he needs to be beat up, and then and then those guys when I they, there's a scene where they're rowing in the morning, yeah. and um and their buddy um Diva what was yeah, the guy's name Divya Divya comes in to to tell them like you know their website's been stolen and they're on they're on an erg that's inside it like you know whatever it's still dark outside and it's the morning I'm like man the, for those of us who know we know like this isn't bobsledding any <laughs> jackass sorry guys this you guys are gonna hate this any jackass can make the Olympic bobsledding team. <laughs> That's like, that's where athletes go to die. This is not that sport. Rowing is nuts. Yeah, it is nuts. And uh, yeah, I mean, they, their whole life revolved around rowing for many years. Um, and yeah, that movie, I think, captures Zuckerberg very well. Uh, Zuckerberg has Uh-oh. proved to be who he was in that movie, right? You know? And I don't, I don't know. I don't do Facebook. I, I mean, I do Instagram. I guess that's Facebook, but like, I don't know much about him, but man, that movie just makes him look like a dick. <laughs> well, he's a, he's got a lot of issues. And I think that, it, <laughs> you know, he, he's uh believes that the world should be a certain way and he wanted to create it that way. And he's an absolute genius, but he doesn't think of friends the same way we think of friends. And he screwed a lot of people over. Um, and the Winklevoss twins got caught up in that. Um, and they were, they were, they, harbor this anger towards mark because they feel like he stole from them um and and yet they came back you know they they have a whole second act that you never expect to see um so it's it's just a wild story and they're locked in this thing between zuckerberg and the twins it continues um because now you know they move into bitcoin then zuckerberg tries to move into crypto then you know they, they're moving into the metaverse and nfts and now zuckerberg's gonna do the whole metaverse and it, it's, it's a continuing mm. battle um, and as an author, I love this because this drama, I think, can continue to multiple books and multiple movies. I <laughs> oh, you're like me. I, um, I, I, they, you, you mentioned that they started the company. Lib- they started the company Gemini and then yeah. Zuckerberg started Libra. Right. I mean, exactly. That can't be a coincidence, right? No. There's this thing going on between them um, that just won't stop. And, and uh, it's wild to watch because they're both they're all billionaires now. You know, you think they would all just say, OK, it's all over now. Let's just move on. But it's not that way. It's, it's just this titans battling each other. Yeah. You were raised um, in a conservative Jewish home. I don't know. Yeah, this is Wikipedia. Um, I am Jewish. Yes, my family was conservative, might be pushing it. I think my dad's side of the family was more Jewish. Um, and my mom's side was more, you know, less more reformy but i think i was raised in a conservative jewish family you could say that yeah and 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 now you live in boston uh so this second i am hiding out in vermont so i live in boston when covid hit um we came up to the mountains here and we just kind of fell in love with it i'm i'm like a in boston i live in the middle of the city you know i was in back bay and and for 20 whatever years and never spent any time outside like literally never stepped outside and it's like the boy in the bubble. And then when COVID hit, we ran to Vermont and put the kids in school here. And it's just been incredible year and a half. So now we're up in Vermont, but we're going to end up back in Boston in the next few months. Um, but it's- Oh, interesting. When I heard you said you put the kids in school, I was like, okay, that means he's in Vermont forever now. Well, we did two years. We were there. We're going through this year. Probably next fall, we'll be living in Boston. But I'm back and forth. I've been in Boston forever. Um, so it's been kind of my home forever, but I do, do love Vermont too now. So, yeah. Are you, would you consider yourself conservative now? Conservative in terms of politics? 
Yeah, in terms oh, of your politics. That's a great question. I'm like, I'm like a Muppet. Do the Muppets have politics? <laughs> yes, <laughs> very much so. If woke people have um, like, uh, like, politics, the Muppets. Life and, and things just happen and you just, just don't work and make lots of money and that's your life. So the reality is, is I don't really have any political opinions at all. I really don't. I, I, I understand um, that there's a lot of people angry for a lot of different reasons, and I try right. to walk down the middle of that road. Um, on you. I just don't have any, I don't feel like I have any skin in the game on either side. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to write my books, and, and I want people to read them, and I don't care who reads them. And I, and, and, and people, I have tons of friends on, who, do, who are conservative. I have tons of friends who are liberal, and um, I work you know, in Hollywood with wonderful people who are both. And I, I don't really... I don't have any opinions. I really don't. And and I'm more into the writing about it and the drama of it and the excitement and the fun. Um, and, uh, and that's it. So I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for you. I don't, I think I'm, you know, in terms of my, my own feelings, um, I just want everyone to be happy. <laughs> Is right. that so wrong? Um, no, 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 no. I, um, but I will say I am very pro science. I'm a, from a science family, family are all scientists and doctors. So if, if, you know, listen, I'll, I'll, on that side of the thing, I lean heavily into like, give me every chemical there is. <laughs> so I'm not like you CrossFit guys who are super healthy because you're physically intense. If I'm healthy, it's because someone shot me up with something. <laughs> well, you, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. I, I can see just by looking at your skin that you're a pretty healthy guy. And I agree that that's, that's important and it's great. And when I was living in the city, I was probably very unhealthy because I never stepped outside. I definitely see the benefits of that. And if I were physically able to do something like CrossFit, I'd love to do it. Um, but you can, you can. You no, know, I, it's interesting because as a writer, I know I do things that are intense. Like I can lock myself up for days and days and days and write, you know, I was at the peak of my game. I was writing 40 pages in a day, which I don't even wow. know is physically, it's, it's incredibly demanding. Now it's like five. Or Would you actually write them like this or you type them? Yeah, it's all type. It's all type. Okay, okay. Um, one of the great things my dad did when we were kids is, and, and this was back before, you know, the internet or anything like that. He was like, you're all going to, me and my brothers, you're going to learn to type. That's, yeah. that's the most important thing. And we learned as little kids, you know, playing video games with, there was like games you could play to learn to type. And so I'm, I'm like a secretary in terms of typing. So everything is straight into the computer, but I, I write five or six pages every single day. And that, that takes a level of intensity that I know if I could do it physically, I could probably do some sports, you know, really well. Is that but, part of the discipline for you just to write every single day and not break that chain? It, it is to some extent. Um, I, I, I have a lot of rituals and I have a lot of tricks to, to write, um, which I, I think are really important. And, and so when I'm writing a book, um, it's, it's by page and not by time. So you yeah. don't say I'm going to write five hours because that, is you could write 10 pages, or you could write no pages, but you'll be frustrated either way. But if you say, I'm going to write six pages today, maybe I'll be done in 45 minutes. Maybe I'll be done in five hours. Um, so my day can be very short in terms of my writing day, but I do a page number, you know, per day. When I'm not working on a book, I will not, I, I don't, I don't force myself to write. It's, it's got to be project driven, but when yeah. I'm doing a project, yeah, it's like, I'm going to do six pages every day um, this week. And, and maybe my day is only two hours long and that's great. Did that process change once people started to pay attention and you received the acclimates? Because I used to be a freelance illustration artist and I went to school for it. I remember at first when I used to draw and do art, it was just for me. I would hide it. I didn't want anybody to see it. I thought it you know, sucked. And then as I got better and I would show it, people would go, oh my gosh, you drew this. And then it 
it changed for me. I almost was doing the art and thinking, how are people going to perceive this way more than I did in the past? Did you experience that same thing or something? I mean, there's definitely a point, you know, when, when you start, when you know that a million people are going to read something as opposed to when you don't know if anybody's going to read it, right. you definitely write very differently. And, and I think you get better in, in some ways because you're not just indulging yourself. Um, when you're writing for yourself, uh, you tend to get flowery and indulgent and you're trying to write great literature. When you know that you're going to be selling this, it's going to be the, you know, the first readers are going to be, you know, people in airports and things like that. You really want to want to make it a great story and fun and exciting. I do think that you, you, you absolutely change based on that. Um, and, and it does become much more of a business. Um, there's a lot more people involved, right? Um, and when you're when you're struggling writer, it's you writing and then getting rejections. But when you are writing now, there's agents and, and publicists and publishers and movie studios and, and actors. And you know who's going to be reading this book first, even before it comes out. So it's a totally different game. But in terms of how I write, um, you know, I've run so many books now that there's such a rigid process to how I do this. Um, you know, someone will usually someone's pitching me a story and I'm like, OK, that's a really cool story. Then I spend a couple months in the research phase, hanging out with those people, talking to those people living the story enough that I can write it. And then I write an outline, which is very strict. And it's so strict that I know the page numbers of every chapter in the book. Wow. And I never even wow. miss by a page. And then when I start writing, I've got all the research. I've got the strict outline. Everything is done. And then I can just write. And then it's the six pages a day until I'm done. So it can be, you know, a month and a half of writing or two months of writing. And it comes very quick. Um, and so that's, you know, I'm very rigid about that. Stuff. Is it hard to let it go? Is it hard to say this is done or no. uh, okay. I have it so planned out that I, I, every chapter I'm just following this, this skeleton. So you've built this skeleton so well that you never have to worry about that sort of thing. You know what, what the ending is, you know, what's in each chapter. Um, you have your research already done for every chapter. So there's never that point where I'm like, oh, how does this end? Like, I know every chapter in this book when I start. Um, and that's the key, I think, the outline. And I hate outline. Everyone hates it. It's, it's miserable. But that's the key to, to a book, I think, is having a very good outline. Um, yeah. Ben, you don't you don't exercise at all? No, I do. I'm kidding. I do. Oh. Uh, uh, I'm actually uh, – I cross-country ski every morning for about three miles. Wow, okay. Here, and then I do, uh, you know, uh, an hour on the stationary bike. So I'm actually very uh, – I do a lot of exercise, um, but I think I'm fighting a lot of genetics <laughs> as a as a conservative jewish man as someone who you know grew up uh, with my uh, uh genetic background it's a continuous battle to get into just the amount of working out i do you would think i would be in great shape <laughs> sorry sorry once speaking of exercise equipment hi hello yes is this savan yeah this is me yes sir well i got the exercise equipment I'm trying to deliver oh good I great Okay. Uh, um, when would you like to deliver it? I thought it was going to come Monday. It did. Somebody was there. We called a couple of times. Nobody answered. Oh, I'm so sorry. It can just be just dropped off out front, right? Uh, I could definitely drop it off out front. Okay. The driver was telling me that, you know, I guess there's a gate or something to get up there. Yeah, there's a big gate in front of my house. Yeah, I'm living the dream. <laughs> There isn't. You could just leave it in front of the gate. Or do you know? Are you coming today? Get no, past the guard tower. I'll be doing it tomorrow, so <laughs> between eleven and one. 
Okay, I'll make sure I'm here between 11 and 1 tomorrow. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Okay, peace and love. Bye. My my uh my assault bike, they make this thing. It's a it's a it's a treadmill that you that you force to go. Like it, it's wow. not an electric treadmill. I love it. Yeah, you spend four thousand dollars and the thing doesn't plug in, you gotta make it work. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking oh, nuts. Yeah, yeah. I apologize for the interruption. No, that's all right. But I, I love, show. you know, I do I ski. I'm a big like we like skiing in this family. My kids are on a racing team, so we're up on the mountain all the time. Um and then um yeah, so I I I do, I do exercise a fair amount, but you know, none of it, none of it efficiently. <laughs> when you, when you were exercising and you have a, um, some, an idea come in and, and you've alluded to it already. We had Kyle Creek on a couple of days ago. He's alluded to it. Uh, Stephen King's written about it in his book on writing that these things that come, you don't know where they come from, but you better pull it down or else it will pass by and you will not see it again. Yeah. Um, what do you do when you're out there and you see it? And yeah, you gotta pull it down. Um, like, do you well, stop skiing? Um, yes. So I pull out my phone and I put it in the notes, uh, or I email myself. I email me myself all the time. I me too. Yes. In line. Uh, what actually has been happening a lot is I wake up at like four in the morning with and and like I, I for whatever reason I'm very productive, so I'll, I'll write like a paragraph at four in the morning. Um, and then go back to bed. But if I forget to write it down, you're right, it's gone. It just is gone. You don't, you can't really re re recapture it sometimes. So it's kind of crazy. But I, I will say that jogging or walking or cross country skiing, you do come up with a lot. Of, it's like, those are the times when when a lot happens in your brain. Um, and, and for whatever reason, you get to that state where, yeah, you, you better have something handy to write something down because you'll lose it by the time you're done. Um, but I agree. It, it is a weird process writing um, or any of the arts where, where things just sort of, you know, it's your brain working and figuring things out, but you're, it's so subconscious um, that you just don't know where it comes from sometimes. Is it, is it that or I know you're a science guy, bear with me. Yeah. Uh, is it that, or is it more like a radio? You know, when you, when you have a little radio and you turn it on and you hear yeah. the symphony playing, you don't open the radio to be like, where's those violin players? It's right. coming from somewhere else. I mean, listen, it, I would love to believe that sort of thing, but I, I think more likely um, it's your, you know, there's so much going on in your brain that you just don't know. Like we're right. finding and our brains are looking and finding patterns like all the time. And a lot of what writing is, is is a puzzle it's patterns it's figuring out how it all fits together it's rhythm it's the same thing with music um so i think it's more in your own head than it is you're receiving something um i'm open to that idea i think it's really really cool but i i i think more likely there's just so much more magic to what actually goes on in your head um that you just don't realize is happening um and you're you're figuring things out even when you're not thinking about it so I think it's more coming internally. It's not a big difference whether it's coming externally or internally because the reality is your brain is is so much vaster than you realize. We use such a small percentage of it um, that you could be reading stuff off of that rather than receiving it from elsewhere. But I don't know. That's my my thought is it's probably just internal workings because sometimes you know you'll go to bed not figuring out a scene and you'll wake up with the scene all figured out. Um, and and it's just there's work going on even when you're not paying attention i think 
on that note, I, I won't beat a dead horse, or maybe a little I will. There, there is a saying, um, you know, there's there's Taoist saying, "Stop thinking, and all your problems will will end." But there was also the Buddhist teachers would say, if you want new thoughts, you have to stop thinking to yeah. make room for those for those new thoughts. And I'm so, one hundred percent a fan of that. I really, really agree with that. And and um, like I used to before I started writing every morning, I had a ritual where I had a backgammon and I would play backgammon against myself three times. And what it was was wow, you are weird. Off entirely, um, it's all about turning your brain off. The best writing happens, and so I'll actually have the room pitch black with music, really loud music playing, um, and I'm writing in that environment because I'm trying to just turn my head off from all. Yeah, like the more blank you make yourself, the more uh, more you can create. There's definitely something to that. What kind of music? Uh, it all depends on what I'm writing. Um, so sometimes. You know, it'll be uh, it'll be like Eminem or something kind of more vicious. And sometimes it'll be classical music. Um, you know, when I was writing this book, Midnight Ride, I actually tried to listen to Revolutionary War era music, which is horrible, by the way. It's actually <laughs> like fifes and drums, and it's really hard to, hard to listen to recreations of that. But um, you know, it depends on the scenes that I'm writing, and I try and sort of pick music around those scenes. Um, so. Um, yeah, it's it's actually a big part of my writing is, is listening to. Does know, the early morning does the early phase? I went through like a the mod like English mod rocker phase where I was listening to that stuff. Um, it's 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 all I'm I have very eclectic taste in music. So yeah, I'd like to propose that it's it's the it when you're when you're training and you start focusing on your breath and you become get some oxygen deprivation going that your brain silences. And that's when your antenna is the strongest, and that's why it's coming from the outside world. And 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 you induce that silence in the brain. But but I but I have no fucking proof of it. So yeah, actually, no, I, let's, I like let's move on to the next thing. I have no proof yeah. of that. For you think I'm so weird, and like you call your publicist, and you're like, "Why'd you take this podcast?" <laughs> no, I'm into that. Listen, I I'm I I don't I, I don't have any sort of reason not to agree with all that sort of thing. I think that you definitely quieting your brain either to receive something or to get it from yourself. It's, it's very similar. Um, so I like that idea and maybe it is the, the lack of oxygen or whatever it is um, that, that sets you up. Isn't, is Stephen King in your, in your hood in Vermont? He's in Maine, I think. Um, uh, and Dan Brown is somewhere near where I am. Um, there's definitely something to going up, you know, into the mountains and writing or, or isolating yourself. So I used to be, the opposite. I like to write in cities. I wrote in Vegas. I would go to Vegas and stay in a different hotel room every night. So I wrote Bringing Down the House that way. I literally stayed in a different suite every night until I'd written that book. Um, and in New York, I used to write in, in city and hotels. Um, but I've been writing really well up here. So I don't know. Maybe this is going to be my new thing to do the whole Stephen King thing where you're in like a small town in a small you know room somewhere. Um, but everyone's different. Every writer is different. I mean, uh, John Grisham would write on the subway, you know, <laughs> um, he'd have a notepad and write on the subway. Wow. It's, uh, you distract yourself in different ways, I guess. Um, but, uh, I, I like both. So, yeah. Um, how, how many movies, potential movies are in the works right now? Yeah. You have the GameStop, you have the, um, well, the social network was my latest book, which was about the GameStop drama. And we're going to be shooting that movie this spring. So that's okay. happening very fast. We have a, we're going to announce a big director shortly. I don't have, I don't know who it is yet, but we have a bunch of directors who are vying for it. Um, and we'll start casting it very soon, which is great. Um, Bitcoin billionaires is going to be made this year as well. Um, so 
that book, uh, I, the movie is being made by a guy named Greg Silverman who reached to run Warner's Pictures. And the Winkleby twins are actually involved as producers on it. Oh, cool. So, you know, the financing is all fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's going to be a really cool movie. And we have a great writer uh, involved that we haven't announced yet. But that movie is going to get made this year. Um, then the Midnight Ride is being made by Spielberg and Amblin. And I wrote a draft of that movie of the screenplay. So I just handed that in. So we'll see how that goes. Um, how many, um, before you go on to your fourth movie oh, that's in, in the works, uh, is that your first screenplay you've written? No, it's my first major studio screenplay. Okay. I wrote a version of my book, Ugly Americans uh, for DreamWorks, but years and years ago it didn't get made. I wrote an independent screenplay for a bunch of independent uh, people um, a couple of years ago that hasn't gotten made yet. So this is my first, and I write for the show Billions on uh, Showtime. Wow. So, okay. Uh, I wrote an episode of Billions last year, which I guess is sort of a screenplay. It's a TV uh, teleplay or whatever you want. To call yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I it counts. Yeah. Um, so then um, I have a television show in the works. A uh, book I wrote called Seven Wonders was picked up by uh, NBC Universal and uh, uh, Justin Lin, who Justin Lin is actually who did Fast and the Furious, is making this show. So that's a television show, and then. Um, Gosh, what else is in the works? My book, Wooly. Um, so I wrote a book about a bunch of scientists who are making a woolly mammoth in Boston. It's a true story. Um, and it's all about genetics and the biological revolution going on in, in labs. Um, that is is being, that going to happen? Are they really going to make one? Yeah, we'll have an actual living woolly mammoth in the next five years, which is nuts. Um, they've already oh, got, shit. they've already got, uh, they've already figured out how to do the hair and the tusks. And like, uh, they're going to take an elephant and an elephant's going to give birth to a woolly mammoth. And it's a wild story. The book is called Wooly. And the guy is Dr. George Church, who is like the Einstein of our times, is doing this. Um, and I spent a year in his lab just writing this book. And the movie's been picked up by the guys who did Memoirs of a Geisha and a bunch of other big movies. And it's being made um, uh, along with the woolly mammoth. So our goal is it's going to be like amusement parks and woolly mammoths and a big book and a big movie. Um, so, so how, how, how do you have... Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, Ben. I'm trying to remember if there's any more. There's there's always like things going on. I have a couple other projects that are in the works, but earlier they're not quite yet at the studio stage. Yeah. Your wife's going to be like, I can't believe you didn't say as soon as you get off. Well, the Shelly number stories too. Yeah. My wife and I, uh, we, uh, uh, Ellen Pompeo from Grey's Anatomy is producing and we're doing uh, hopefully, hopefully somewhere like Disney or Nickelodeon that'll get made, but that's more like a children's series. Um, yeah. How how strict is your schedule from when you wake up to when you go to bed? It sounds it sounds insane. Do you deal with all this, or do you have an agent? That, like how yeah, do you like how do you spend deal. time with your kids? How do you be creative? How do you yeah, how do you use the bathroom? I don't do very much of, of so basically. You know, you have a Hollywood agent, you have a publishing agent, and then you have uh, you know a lot of people involved in each of those things. Different producers are making those movies, so that stuff is usually just fielding phone calls or emails. You're not really involved to that degree and, and once the movie starts shooting i will go on set and i'll be on set for a couple weeks um but really the author of the book has no you know reason to be there <laughs> you're not you know you're not making any decisions nobody really cares what you say at that point um yeah in terms of so my i get up in the morning with the kids i take the kids to school i try and do some sort of exercise like skiing or something like that for a couple hours and then i eat lunch and then i write and I usually write for four or five hours, depending on what what phase I'm in. Um, and then uh, and then I do phone calls and emails with all of the people. Um, with the NFT project, I'm much more involved um, uh, in that 
right now. So I'm talking to a lot of people doing, I'm doing a lot of Twitter spaces and things like that. I'm telling stories and things like that, but yeah. And then when I publicize a book, it's totally different. Then you're on tour. So when this book comes out in February for about four to six weeks, I'll be mostly doing interviews, um, just in it, three interviews or four interviews a day. You used to just travel a lot in COVID. I don't know how much I'm going to travel. Uh, if things, hopefully things will open, everything will open back up by first week of March. And then I'll go on the road and I'll do, you know, 10 cities or something like that. Um, Matt, I want to come back to this NFT. I want to ask him something. So, um, yeah. I have this hierarchy of things. Um, do you know how your parents met Ben? Yeah. Uh, how they met. Yes. My dad, uh, Brooklyn college in New York. My dad was a basketball player at Brooklyn college, Brooklyn polytechnic. And my mom actually was a cheerleader at Brooklyn College, and so they met. You know, they were you know two Jewish people in in uh, Brooklyn um, who, who you know were in the same circles and met each other. And their first date was in Times Square on New Year's Eve, uh, where they actually lost each other uh, and couldn't find each other on the date and didn't see each other the next day. So that's how wow. they met in Brooklyn, New York. Yes. And, and how did you know? How old were they? So they were in their early twenties. They were teens? young. They were young. Um, so it was yeah early. My older brother, I think, was my mom had when she was like 21 or something. So they were very, it was a different era, obviously, but they were, uh, they were young. Yeah. So, uh, and, and how much, um, sorry, this is a shitload yeah. of loaded questions I'm leading you down. I like um, it. Yeah, we'll get, you, we'll get somewhere. You'll like it, I think. Therapy, so this is good. <laughs> um, so your, your mom had your brother at 21, and how many siblings are there? Uh, there's three brothers. Older brother and, and my younger, yeah. I'm the middle. And, and so when was the youngest one born? If she was 21, when she had the first one? I figure out if I have the right, the age is right. So my younger brother is two years younger than me. And my older brother is like three years older than me. Okay. So between 21 and 26, she had three of you or 27. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And and when did she go to law school? So my mom, so my, both my parents changed careers later in life. So my dad was an electrical engineer and an inventor and worked for J&J &J and RCA he helped make uh, ultrasound, which they use, you know, he helped make the holograms they use in the Disney. Um, it has a hundred and something patents. So he's a very smart guy, worked on MRI and, and a lot of uh, medical technology, then decided he wanted to be a doctor. Um, so he actually, in his early 40s, went back to med school. Wow. Um, so when I was in God, maybe third or fourth grade, I can't remember when it was, he went to med school. And so my mom sort of took care of the family while my dad went to med school and then she decided, okay, well, I'm going to go to law school. Wow. So went to law school in her forties and got a law degree. And so he became a, a doctor, very successful and was the chairman of radiology at, at um, Penn and then at U Maryland retired. He's, he's 80 now. So he retired a number of years ago and um, moved to Florida, like all the old Jews do. Um, but my mom uh, worked in, was only a lawyer for a few years um, I don't think she loved it, but she loved going to school and, and doing it. Um, and both my brothers are my, my older brother is an MD, JD, MBA oh. <laughs> at Yale, a radiologist. And my younger brother is like the head of transplant. Um, uh, he's a liver kidney transplant surgeon in Madison, Wisconsin. So oh my, my brother, goodness. That's a, that's a tough gig to oh have these God. days. Talk about intense people. Like my brother will call me and he's, you know, I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm about to start a 12 hour surgery. It goes all night till the next day. And I'll be like in Vegas. <laughs> he's like, I hate you. So our, our lives are very different. Uh, but um, he works, you know, when they do those liver transplants, they're eight to 10 hour surgeries. 
um, physically demanding and uh, just intense. Um, so he's one of those surgeons who's just pretty like, yeah. yeah. And you went to and you went to Harvard. I did, yeah. And and what did you study there? So I knew I wanted to be a writer. So I, I basically was trying to appease my parents um, who didn't think that being a writer was something one could do for a living. Um, you know, and so I was pretending to go to law school. Um, so oh. I did like pre-law, but I did all like liberal arts kind of like, you know, classes, but I, I basically. Women's, women's studies. <laughs> whatever I had to do, right? right. I did social, political theory, social. Yes. Studies, which was a major it was called. Uh, but really, I knew what I wanted to do. So I was writing and writing and writing. And then when I graduated from college, I had to apply and defer law school and then say to my parents, I'm going to write. And my dad was like, OK, one year, we're not going to let you starve. We'll give you enough, just enough that you won't starve. But by the end of the year, if you haven't proved to us that you're going to make it as a writer, um, you, you're, you're basically cut off. That's it. You figure it out yourself. Go to law school. So um, I locked myself up and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And by the end of the year, I had an agent. Um, and, uh, that was enough, uh, to let me just sort of drop the law school thing. And then I worked odd jobs, but I got very lucky. I sold my first book when I was 24. Um, so it really was only 21 to 24 where I was kind of like, um, scared. Uh, I mean, I was still scared after I sold my first book, but at least I had proven that I could make it at least, you know, some level of a living writing by the age of 23, 24. Were you, were you living at home? No, I, I, uh, me and uh, uh, two other, well, one other writer um, who now actually was was one of the heads of the Atlantic Monthly magazine. So he's a, a really smart, smart dude and has done a couple books. We were both struggling writers living in a crappy apartment in the basement of a dental office in the back bay in Boston. So uh, we were just able to afford it. He was uh, worked at a bookstore and I worked for some, I wrote brochures for some public service organization. So we were like basically, you know, living on peanut butter and jelly for a couple of years while we lived in this little apartment. Um, but I was very fortunate. I sold my first book right really one year after that. So it wasn't very long of, of that. Um, and then, by the way, I, I wasn't successful. So I sold books, um, but I was vastly overpaid, but nobody read the books. Wow. Um, so what I did very smartly was get myself hugely into debt. <laughs> I, ended up, <laughs> I ended up spending a few years. My parents hate when I tell these stories. But in my 20s, I racked up almost $2 million in debt, um, which is actually quite impressive. And yeah. I had an IRS agent who knew me by name <laughs> go up and say, you have to pay something. I had uh, all of my accounts frozen but there was one where I could still get money out of it. I was living so, I mean, sneaking out the window kind of thing. Um, I had uh, uh, $78,000 in credit card debt, and I would use those checks from the credit card companies to pay my rent. Um, it was the dumbest thing in the world. You should never do that. Um, and so literally, when I sold Bringing Down the House, I was in a mountain of debt um, to the point where I, was, I had a stack of uh, business school applications. And I was like, I'm going to have to go to business school because the only way I could ever pay my way out of this is to go work on Wall Street. And, you know, I'd gone to Harvard, so it wasn't like I wasn't going to be able to get a real job. Um, but I knew I was on the verge of, and this was after I published six books. Um, so pre-bringing down the house, I was kind of an it boy author. So they were paying me a lot for the books, but I was spending even more than they were paying me. So what in, were you buying? How do you get in $2 million debt? That's in, that isn't, I made, I, so I was in like 40 to 50, $60,000 debt and I was yeah. making movies and it was nuts. Yeah. No, was, 2 not, million. I'm just like, oh, it, it really is actually impressive. It's, it is actually something kind of to be proud of. The amount of money that I, the way I spent money 
was insane. It was, I would go to the airport on a Wednesday, the Logan airport, no bags, nothing. I'd show up at the airport and I'd buy a one-way ticket to like Paris or London uh, or, or anywhere. And I would fly one way and I would go to the nicest hotel and book like the nicest suite and then call all the friends that I had and, and say, come, we're going to have fun. And we'd spend two weeks in wherever we were. We were at the top floor of the, uh, what was the Renaissance Hotel in Amsterdam for like three weeks. Then I'd go to the Park Plaza in New York for a month. I went to LA when the Standard and LA opened in West Hollywood. I lived in their, <laughs> their pool suite uh, for a month and a half for no reason at all. And literally... And, and by the way, I didn't do drugs. And no, I was not. I was a little bit of a drunk, but not beyond, you know, what everyone is. I, I was a bit of a drunk. <laughs> but I wasn't a no drugs, nothing like that. Um, and yet I would just spend and spend. And it was just like, it was just fun. And it was kind of like, you know, when someone has like a professional athlete career and they think, okay, it's going to keep happening. I'll just keep right. getting big checks. Right. And and literally I was I was spending yeah. way more than I was taking in. Um and and uh, and it wasn't until like the end of this year period where I was like, oh crap, <laughs> you know, I need to. But I always thought oh, I could just sell another book. But the reality right. is nobody was reading my books, so there was going to come an end point to that uh, ability to sell a book. Uh, and then I ran into the MIT kids and I started going to Vegas with them, and I was like, oh, this is this is a really cool story. It just happens to be true. Um, and and so that what she, year was that? What year was the uh, MIT? The book came out in two thousand two, but I probably discovered the book in. Uh, 2000 or so and um, you met your wife in 2006 or you got married in 2006 uh i met my wife probably uh 2002 probably right around the same time um, okay did you meet her in vegas no tanya oh. i met at a club in boston actually okay. um in, at a nightclub called aria um that uh i was out and about and um yeah which is now a big hotel in vegas right yeah um similar uh yeah same same i don't think the same they're not the same brand but it was the same idea but i didn't meet her in vegas i met her uh, in boston and she was in school at uh um dental school um when i met her and she was a model on the side and so we kind of started hanging out and then she got into fashion and stuff she's done some incredible stuff and had a tv show in boston for a while and and um yeah we, we met around that same period in time yeah is she freaking out when you meet her and you have all this debt? Well, is she, she the adult now? Does she like if you're going to buy a house? Does she do all that? Like, is she the so, adult? She's definitely the adult uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, well, she's definitely more responsible than I am in in, in most ways. But when we met, um, it was an interesting point because uh, I had a, a, a fair amount of. I had six books had come out. I'd written for the X Files. Um, I had a TV movie called Fatal Error, which was really crappy, by the way. Did you meet David Duchovny? Man, you're opening too many doors. David Duchovny and Chris Carter, who ran the show. And Jillian oh, man. I to know in years since um, because she's dating a writer named Peter Morgan, who is working on, might be adapting one of my projects. So I get to wow. be a big fan of, of, of them all. I love that show. Um, so so I had like this level of like, on the outside, it looked like I was doing very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> A lot of big books and and stuff going on. Um, But right around that time, I started talking and hanging out with the MIT kids. And so everything kind of exploded. Like it it, it happened pretty fast. Like um, I I, the book wasn't going to be a big book. Like I sold it for the least amount of money I had sold any of my books. And the first print run was going to be this tiny 12,000 copy print run. Because at that point in time, Vegas was not hot. Um, This was before Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker. So Vegas was like off, like it, 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 nobody was going there. It was before Vegas had revived itself. 
Um, so when I sold the book, it was a tiny little book. But what happened was I wrote an article for Wired magazine about the MIT kids and Kevin Spacey read it. And back then that was a good thing, right? Yes, um, yes. So out it was of, bigger than life. Yeah, I got a call from Kevin Spacey, called me on the phone. And he's like, wow. he's like, come to LA, I want to talk to you. Um, so I flew to LA. Yeah, that's Dana. That, that picture is me, Jeff Ma, who was the main character in 21, and Dana Brunetti, who runs Kevin Spacey's company. Um, so Dana and Kevin picked me up at the airport and they're like, we're going to make a movie out of this. And I was like, that's, that's awesome. How much are you going to pay me? And because I was in this massive debt at that point in time. And Kevin and Dana were like, we're not going to pay you anything. And I was like, what? And we're like, they're good. we're going to give you zero. And I was like, that doesn't seem like a good deal. And they're like, that's our deal right now. We want to make this movie. We'll give you zero now. If it gets made, we'll give you, you'll, you'll make a lot. And I was like, this seems crazy. So I go back to my agent and I'm like, Kevin Spacey wants to make the movie, but they're, they don't want to pay me anything. And he's like, well, let me, let me find out. And, and at the same day, I got an offer from a major studio um, separate because they found out Kevin Spacey was interested. And they offered me $750,000. Right? Ah, and so I go almost, to, almost half your debt. Right. So I, go back to, <laughs> I go back to Kevin and Dana. I'm like, guys, guys, this other studio is offering me three quarters of a million dollars. What are you guys going to offer me? And Kevin and Dana are like, we're still going to offer you zero. You have to choose. And, and I'm like, Wow. Well, this is a bad choice. And then Dana said to me, and I'll remember this to this day, he's like, if I gave you $750,000 right now, what would you do? And I said, I would spend it. I would spend every penny of it. Because he knew my whole story, how I'd been driven myself into horrible debt. And he's like, yes, you'd spend every penny of it and you'd be back exactly where you are right now. So here's what we're going to do. You can go on talk shows and talk about how Kevin Spacey's going to make this movie. When we make this movie, you'll get a ton of money. And this is going to be a career not a big check. Ah, okay. And so I went back to, and I, who said that to you, your agent, Dana, Kevin Spacey's main head of production. Oh, okay. So my agent was like, are you nuts? Take the center. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He was yelling at me. So I turned down the court three quarters of a million dollars and I took the zero deal with Kevin Spacey. Then I ended up going on the today show and the book exploded and became mm-hmm. a bestseller. The movie got made, became a huge movie, changed my entire life. Um, solved all my problems with the IRS and paid all my debts. And and ever since then, I became a different person. I got smarter, and I got married, and I got a family, and I and I stopped being a lunatic. Um, and you gained a tremendous confidence in yourself too, right? Well, I've always had a lot of. I've always been delusionally confident in myself. <laughs> that's never been an issue. I've never. I've always thought, and that's what maybe I'm like talking. a more settled down then, like a calmer confidence. Maybe a, um, like it's my life is all about my kids and my family. I, you know, I don't drink at all anymore. I haven't had a drink in many years. Um, I'm just not, I, I don't care about that stuff anymore um, as much as I enjoy it. Listen, I'm the biggest like star fucker in the world. I love being around celebrities. I love meeting cool people, but, I, but I'm but i a Boston kid. Like I go there for two days and I'm like, this is nuts. These people are all insane. Um, most of them are shitheads, right? They're the, worst, they're the worst people in the world for the most part. I'm sure you've met a lot of these people. Yes, yes. But it's still fun. Right. And then you yes. go to Boston yes. and you have a real life or I go to Vermont and I have a real life. So I've definitely lived the double life um, aspect of it, but I've leaned into the more normal, real, you know, uh, world. So, yes, I became smarter. I became careful. I got an accountant. I got business manager. I, I'm, I'm not in charge of the stuff that I used to be in charge of, which is for good reason. 
<laughs> I totally relate to the star fucker thing. No, I had a story I never tell. I, I don't think I've ever told this story to this degree on any podcast. So uh, I don't know. You're opening me up in bad ways. That my friends <laughs> not like. But um, I, it's just been a weird. Uh, it's it's been a, a, a wild run. Um, but I will say this: all of the books I've written have been informed by the crazy period in my life. Like when I wrote the Vegas story, I knew Vegas hosts. I had gambled. I had sat at a blackjack table at two in the morning and lost $40,000 in five hours. <laughs> I knew what that felt like, right? And so then I wrote, you know, the social network, it wasn't hard for me to meet all of the people I needed to meet. Like I have so many connections because of the crazy period in my life. If I need like a CIA agent, I, a agent, I know who to call. If I need to find like a criminal, I know where to go. Um, you know, I've been hanging out with like, well, I wrote a book called Straight Flush where I had to hang out with fugitives, you know, people who sleep with guns under their pillows and stuff like that. I know these people <laughs> because I'd hung out with them in my crazy period of time. I wrote a book about Russian oligarchs and I had already been on these billionaire yachts and things like that. So it wasn't, it's not all, you know, I, I've, I've got some groundwork laid by my crazy period in life um, that makes it easier to write the books going forward. I had Kyle Creek on, uh, he, he he's, Young guy, 35 years old, uh, you know, self-published guy on Amazon fucking selling books faster than they can print them. And he said something that that I really like, and it's, it's so true with me too, and I'm paraphrasing. All the shitty things that happened in his life are basically fertilizer where all the great shit is now growing from. And I okay. use an example, a really simple – well, I using this example. The, you've been in a, in a liquor store a thousand times. The only time you remember is the time you were in there and the place was held up and, and, and you got shot in the foot. And that's why that moment is so great. Some people bitch about the hardest times in their life. The time you had to shit in a trash can in a closet at a, at a college because you <laughs> ate something bad, that's great. 20 years later you need that fucking moment 20 years it's the greatest thing that ever happened to you 20 years later because you can write about it if you're creative that's that is the that's the chicken fertilizer in your yard where the sunflowers are now growing out of yeah i mean i think you're absolutely right and, and you, all of these experiences matter and uh and and they're important so yeah i agree i agree yeah yeah um i, I um my my mom was um, I'm, I'm 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 armenian my mom and dad are armenian they're divorced my um i grew up in in berkeley california um it's as fucked up as boston is and uh, maybe more so um and my stepmom was jewish so as an armenian boy who grew up in a jewish household i was brought up extremely extremely liberal extremely li liberal hug every tree love every human being um to the point where it kills them and um, and, and now I wear vests like you and I'm, but, but I'm a few years younger than you. I'm only 49. Okay. I'll be 50 in March. And I, and my mom went to law school when she was pregnant with my, um, sister. No, when she was she pregnant with me or my sister, I can't remember. And she, it was, um, my dad went to law school and then my mom just tagged along and then my dad dropped out and my mom kept going. Yeah. And my mom was the first woman to graduate from her law school. It was a night law school. Fantastic. Yeah. And so, and then basically, you know, she started practicing law and making like $12,000 a year and struggling, Phoenix, peanut butter and jelly. My parents got divorced, but I, I probably have a very, um, I have the low rent version of your life. I think right. like, like, like the, more the budget. It's a, right. a little smaller city. I didn't have a two Jews. I only had one Jew and it was a stepmom, but I got the Armenians. Those are kind of like low rent Jews. Right, right. Uh, but, but, and then I see you wearing a vest and, and, and yeah. I, I just, the more I dug into you, I was like, wow, this me and this guy maybe have some similar things. 
Yeah. Um, and, and I really like the star fucking thing too. Two days ago, I had a guy on who had lost a hundred pounds and I didn't tell anyone he was coming on as a guest. I get you on as a guest and I've told anyone who will listen, like I'm checking out at the gas station today. I'm like, Hey, I got Ben Mesrick on my, on my show next week. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like I, I, I relate I mean, to it, man, fun. a lot. Life, life is uh life. You want it to be exciting and fun. And I think there's just, there's a lot of, like, I have so many stories, you know, about, uh, just, uh, all of that stuff. I mean, it's just an incredible experience after experience. So I've just been, I've been lucky. I've been lucky. And, um, you know, it's, it's all worked out. So like my brother say, I'm like a Muppet. I just kind of fall from one thing to the next and I enjoy it and I have fun with it. And I move on to the next. I've been sort of, you know, working in that way. So. Um, luck is a huge understatement. And I like what you said, like a Muppet falling from one thing to the next, the two metaphors people ask me about, about how I do my life. I feel like I'm more like a Labrador chasing a tennis ball, or I feel like Forrest Gump, or I feel like Mr. Magoo. But the thing is, and I wanted to ask you this too, since you know a lot of fucking really rich people. Yeah. Do, 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 do you know any lazy rich people? I mean, uh, lazy is a hard word. I, I definitely don't think people got rich that way. Um, right. I certainly know people who were born rich um, who, who don't necessarily become the Winkle by twins, you know, okay. that's why I find them so fascinating is they didn't have to, um, do the stuff that they did. You know, nobody, they felt they had to, um, and they see themselves as underdogs always, but had they wanted to just live their lives, they certainly could have. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Like, you know, the, the people that I write about, no, none of them are lazy or anything like that. That's for sure. Um, um, you know, they're all self-made or most of them are self-made, even like the Russian oligarch. I mean, those guys fought tooth and nail. Um, they were definitely not lazy. They did scary, scary things um, and bad things, but you couldn't call any of them lazy. Um, <laughs> no, probably not. Um, I don't think I know any lazy billionaires. I know kids of billionaires who are pretty lazy, but, uh, but not, no, not, I don't. Yeah. Yeah, take that away, people. That's the thing that's so hard about being brought up liberal. And I was in New York City, and I was in, and and I heard this guy speaking. One of my friends was going to see this speaker, like who tells you how to get rich quick. Yeah. And his take, and and, and I was just, and I was making. A, he was a professional arm wrestler, and I was making a documentary about him called Pulling John. So I tagged along with him to this thing. And the guy who's like trying to sell the DVDs to you for like you know three thousand dollars the package. Um, he said one of the things he says is um uh. God will give you whatever you want. And so if you resent rich people, God will never make you rich because he doesn't want you to resent yourself. And like, I didn't believe in God. And, and, but I, but I knew right away that whatever he just said was fucking true. Like, it, like I'm just sitting there like this guy's full of shit. And then all of a sudden it hit me like a lightning bolt. And as a liberal raised in Berkeley, even though my family had some means and you know what I mean? Like, you know, like we, we drove a car and, and like I had lunch money. I knew that, that there was a resentment towards rich people that was extremely fucking unhealthy. Yeah, that, that that I was raised with in Berkeley and that liberals are raised with, because basically what it does is it keeps everyone down. I, listen, I agree with that. And and um, Janet Madsen, the New York Times, used to call me the billionaire's best friend because I always write very glowing things about very rich people. And, and I agree that there's there is a lot of resentment and anger. But one of the things that I also like to keep in mind is the reality is a lot of people work really, really hard and don't get rich. <laughs> right. 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 That's right. The side of the whole thing is that hard work is necessary, but it's not enough. Um, right. You have to also be in the right place at the right time, be very lucky and be smart about how you work um, and what you work on. And and so it's tricky. It's tricky because I know a lot of people who work a whole lot harder than I ever have um, and their lives don't necessarily work out the way maybe they should. 
Um, so it's tough. It's tough. And I get the resentment towards um, extreme wealth uh, because everyone feels like they're working hard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, uh, you know, I agree with you. And, and I also see there's there's some shakiness to it because it's I, when I look back at my life, my successes, I, I agree. If I hadn't worked as hard as I worked, I wouldn't have had them. But I, I know a lot of writers who've worked just as hard as I have who didn't get there. Um, so, you know, there's also a lot of rolling in the dice in life. Um, Man, you're nicer than I am. Damn, you're nicer than I am. You gotta, I, wonder I'll, I wonder if I'll be as nice as you in three years. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get there. No, I, listen, I, I want everyone to, to achieve and succeed and be happy. Um, and I wish everyone could, could have that luck come to them. Um, and I, I understand that, you know, <laughs> I locked myself in a room and I wrote nine books in a year. And I know that's super hard to do. But I also know that it didn't always have to lead to the next good thing. I could have written those nine books and, and ended up a drunk. <laughs> you know, living in Boston right now. So, you know. I, I'm going to push you a little bit more on this. Let me. So yeah. Sorry, I'm going to push you a little bit more on this. I mean, uh, th- there was a uh, – tell a couple stories. There was a Harvard professor that I read about in Smithsonian, and he was an artist. And he was also into running marathons, and he also, I think, sp- taught uh, entomology. Is that the study of insects? Yes. Uh, at at Harvard. And so what he would do is he had a cabin up in the woods, and what he would do is he would run this path. And every like few miles, he would make like a concoction, like rotten bananas with like some sugar poured on it. And then and then he would then, you know, every day run that same path and stop every couple miles. And there would be bugs there eating these, you know, mushy concoctions. He made dead animals he'd leave out and he would draw these bugs. So he's an entomologist. He was an artist and he was a, um, a runner. Those were his three passions. And he got them all in one thing. And that's what he would do. And he published this amazing book that I own and it's, it's um, all about bugs. And he drew every bug in, in that book. Right. I'm willing to bet not $2 million, but I'm willing to bet a hundred bucks that you do that too. And that I do that too. I watch the UFC. It's the only fucking sport I watch. And I spend three hours a week watching it. But because I watch it, I also make sure that at least once a week, I reach out to a UFC fighter to get them on my podcast. I don't fuck around. I don't fucking dilly dally with, I would never get into the NFL unless I was thinking about manufacturing footballs Interesting. or, or like my whole life is like a tight weave. I have to guess your life is like that. There's no way you could be this productive. Even, I mean, you're writing fucking children's books and you told me the first thing you do in the morning is drive your kids somewhere. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. I think that everything informs, you know, you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right that you, I'm passion driven. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, obsessed with being a writer right and, and yeah. that i've definitely funneled my whole life around that um you so don't drink you don't drink right anymore anymore <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, did. I did i did you um, got married that's your only indulgence right oh gosh that's an indulgence but no i i i think that um it's interesting when i got married and had kids my i really thought to myself oh this is going to be the end of my writing career right i was like you know how do you do that and it ended up being way more productive a writer after I had kids than before I had kids. Um, way more productive, like with like a baby under one arm and a dog running around than running around going to bars, you know, trying to meet girls. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's much more productive time because I think the real reason is because 2am to 7am, <laughs> you're not out, right. You right. have half the day that you didn't have before. Um, and sure. The rest of your day is, is taking care of kids and, and stuff like that. But you know, you used to just sleep late. <laughs> so I think that 
in, in any event, you're right. I, I think that the focus and all of that stuff is is stuff that I, I am able to do. And and um, yeah, yeah. So I'm just driving home that it's 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 more than hard. There's like hard work is where it begins. Yeah. But then there becomes this sort of um. I mean, you said something so great. I I hope and I marked the point point. You said it at 27 minutes. You even you have your own plan on how you write. I mean, yeah. most people write for time. I've never heard anyone say that they write for pages. I mean, this is fucking brilliant. Simple and brilliant. Did you come up with that? Great question. And I don't I I, I don't remember. I don't know. I think I did, but I, it might have been. Uh, I, I might have been talking to. You know, when I was a, a young writer, I was trying to just become a writer by reading and every book that I could get my hand of and, and obsessing over my idol. So my idol writers were Michael Crichton, um, was um, Brace Nellis and Jay McInerney, Hunter S. Thompson. And I would read everything there is about them. I would try and follow their careers, read every book they ever written. So maybe I, I swallowed up like a sponge from somewhere and my reading about these other great writers. But it's always been the way I've done it. I've always, somewhere early on, I came up with the idea that it was going to be about pages. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's always how it, and when I was younger, it was, a, it was more than six pages a day. It was, I really started out uh, trying to do 40 pages a day when I was a struggling writer, which is completely insane. And I, and I did that. And then I shifted down to, I remember 14 pages a day and then it was 10 pages a day. And now it's six pages a day. <laughs> so it's getting, getting shorter, getting shorter. Um, well yeah. When I wrote my CrossFit book, it was just one page a day. But that's fine because uh, yeah. a book is only 300, what, 350 pages. So you can do a book in a year doing one page a day. Um, and I was doing it because I was angry. Yeah, well, anger is a great, <laughs> great motivator, <laughs> right? What, what are your vests the new – is that is, – did he mean yarmulke? Is that what he means? I'm, wearing, I'm really wearing a vest right now because I was literally uh, coming back from outside. <laughs> <It was> <laughs> This is like a cool, like, uh, let's see, if it's on, like, heated, uh, heated vest. Yeah. yeah. Not, baby. It's like always negative 10 degrees here. So you get the heated <laughs> vest. Um, it is funny. Now that I'm in NFTs, I'm always on phone calls with, with VCs, you know, Silicon Valley VCs and always a vest. Everyone is wearing a vest in every call. So. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. It's a VC wear, you know. Yeah. It's the same company you're wearing a vest right now. The Sand Hill Road uh, protocol. Yeah, it is. It is, but it's amazing. I mean, every call you're on, there'll be like six people, and they're all wearing vests. <laughs> okay. how, how are you for time? Do you have to go to the bathroom or anything? Ben? No, I'm all right. Why? Okay. What, what you got? What you got for me? I, I I know this. This isn't fair to ask you this, but I, fuck it, I got you here. What, what What the fuck is an NFT? I know, and I'm like, gonna, I'm going to tell you what an NFT is. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and. An NFT is a non-fungible token. That's what it means. But basically, it's an image. Um, this is the simplified way um, that is both unique and tradable and ownable and digital. So, for instance, you, you, you say that again: unique, ownable, unique, and tradable. Tradable. Okay. Um, and so, basically, you can buy an image, right, or a little okay. video, ten seconds of video or really anything, a photograph, um, it is logged on the blockchain. So it is yours. Um, even though someone could take a picture of it and have a copy of it, it's the original. Okay. Um, and that, because it's original and unique, has value. You can sell it to somebody else. You can use it as your avatar. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, it's yours. And uh, so essentially, a lot of companies, a lot of people, a lot of celebrities are, are doing these NFTs, artists, and people are buying them 
and they're either going up in value or going down in value. They're like a token. They're very similar to cryptocurrency. Just like you could buy a Bitcoin, you can buy an NFT. Um, so what I'm doing is I've actually dropped my first line of NFTs. We're doing three drops. Um, and if you own all three of my NFTs, you're going to own a piece of the screenplay that I'm writing for a movie um, set in this NFT space. Okay, let me ask you a question here. Sorry. So this is where it got, I got get confused. So it's this digital piece an image that, it's a picture yeah it's a, okay so it's a picture and it's um and, and your registration that it's yours is on this thing called the blockchain right but so then there's NFT, it's, it's officially you, you minor you buy with ethereum so you have to use ethereum to buy them it costs 0.06 ethereum for one of these little images oh um, that's what it cost originally now it's it's it costs more because that was the minting price so had you been one of the people who bought the first six thousand that's what you bought them for um, but now they're tradable for much more depending on the market. Um, so NFTs can only be bought with crypto because that's what identifies you as the owner in the blockchain. Uh, it can only be bought as crypto. And when you buy it, a something called a smart contract is formed, which logs that NFT on the blockchain. So basically your NFT is is logged just the same way Bitcoin or, or Ethereum is. Um, so you buy it with Bitcoin or well, you buy it with Ethereum. Um, but then it itself is a token. So let's say I had shot some video yes. of, and it's one of a kind video of uh, Bill Clinton taking a bong rip and, and then and then blowing the smoke into Hillary's mouth. It's a 15 second clip. Okay. <laughs> You're saying that I could. You could, you could, you could mint that into an NFT uh -huh. and sell it uh, as, as one unique, or you could make 10 copies of it and sell it as 10 unique NFTs of that. Um, uh, with that are logged as one through ten, you know, and people could own that. Yes. Or, or, or if I if, if I don't have that footage, I could make the animation and Good, and you can make an well, you can make an NFT <laughs> of anything you want. Um, this is great. Yeah. And then, and then, how is this connected to the real world, which it's is your script? That's yeah, the part where I start to get a little that's a little bit different. So there are some NFT projects that you probably heard of, like the Board Apes, where it's really just an image. People buy it, and that gives them entrance into a community. So if you own a board ape, you can go to live events. Um, you can go. You can go on these special Discord websites and talk to other people who own board apes. You can just put it up there for status. I own a board ape because they cost tons and tons of money. What we're doing, our NFT project is a little different. It's I wanted to create a community around my books, people who like to read my stuff, people who like the stuff that I write about. So I launched NFTs that are based on, you know, the first one was about meme stocks because I just wrote a book about meme stocks. My second NFT that's coming out, which is going to be free to everyone who owns the first NFT, is going to be about Bitcoin and billionaires and the Winklevi twins. And then the third NFT I'm doing is going to be about Vegas. If you own one of each of those three, right, then I'm writing a screenplay. So it's going to be a movie and I'm going to split the proceeds with my NFT holders. So it'll add utility and value to your NFT. Also, so if you sell the screenplay for... Um, let, I'm just making this up for ease of math. One point two million dollars. Fifty percent of that. That was fifty percent. That would be six hundred thousand dollars. And so every person who bought the NFT would get uh, a thousand. Oh, yeah. ten thousand dollars. No, no. It depends on how many NFTs there are. People. So thousand dollars. Aren't there six thousand? Um, the math is going to be a little bit different. There's six thousand, oh. but there are people who own multiple. Um, okay. Okay. There's a, right now about three thousand holders of my first NFT. Of the um, six thousand. Okay. There's 3,000 of the first 6,000. The second drop will only be one per wallet. So the second drop will be much smaller. Um, right now, it would be 3,000 pieces. Um, 
And then, uh, and then the third drop will be 6,000 again. So there's some game theory involved as people yeah. collect. Also the NFTs have rarity features. So if you look at my NFT pictures, there's like different characters on the rockets. Some of those are worth three script tokens. Um, so you could actually end up with more of the pie depending on which NFTs you own. Is um, it random? Which one you get? Uh, when you minted it was, but now you can go on OpenSea and buy the one you want. So they cost more. Like the rare ones are going for, I think, like 0.2 ETH right now. Um, so people who got them at 0.06 ended up, you know, quadrupling their money already if they wanted it. So that's one part of it. Well, I'm not doing this to, you know, some people are speculating and do this, you know, for the revenues and stuff like that. But I think it's more about if you go on the Discord, we have this whole community. There's like 9,000 people on it. I'm telling stories from my life in one channel so you can read all of my adventures. Um, there's going to be people are getting invited to my book parties who own my tokens. Um, there's going to be a, a live poker event in Vegas when COVID kind of slows down for all NFT holders are going to get to come to Vegas and, and go to an event. Um, I'm going to do writing lessons for anybody who wants who own NFTs and want to do writing lessons. Like there's going to be lots of real world. So what I'm trying to do is bridge, you know, between the tokens and the real world um, via the community. So that's the idea, behind ah. um, which is really cool. It, it's basically, um, it's hard to describe. It's kind of like, you know how Substack people just, you know, give money and an author writes something and they get to read, right? What's cool about NFTs is you actually own a piece of it. So it's not like you're just a subscription to something. You buy the NFT, it's tradable, so it goes up in value, and it gives you access to, to all of these different things, and you actually are going to hopefully, when the movie gets made, get a piece back. So it's another way of, of writers and journalists and people like that um, to be able to build a community, um, but the community gets to participate. Um, so it's, I think it's cool. I think it's we're hopefully breaking new ground with the way I'm doing my NFT. Um, but NFTs as a whole it's becoming a giant thing because things like Nike giant brands are going to get into it and they already are getting into it. Top shot at the NBA has made a fortune um, with little clips. I don't know if you've been following what they've been doing, but you can buy a 10 second shot of LeBron making a basket and, and they come in these little packs just like trading cards. Um, and they've made billions of dollars doing this already. Um, wow. And then, and then you, you actually own that. So then like, if you wanted to, well, okay, so here's where it gets interesting Okay, with, with, with what the NBA is doing, you, you own this card basically, which is, which is a video of LeBron making a basket, but you would not be allowed to rebroadcast that. Ah, that was my question. But so you don't necessarily own the copyright to it. Um, mm. There are people who are doing that. So um, there are people who are literally putting music as an NFT, you buy it, you own it. Um, so that is a second, that's another way you could do an NFT. Um, but here's an interesting thing. So people are like, well, you buy a picture, but you don't own the rights to the picture. Or why does it have value? You could also think about the fact that, for instance, the Mona Lisa is hanging in a museum somewhere. There are millions and millions of posters that are exactly the same in right. rooms or whatever. Right. It doesn't diminish the value of the original Mona Lisa. So if you buy an original NFT, even though many people could make copies of it, the original has value because it's the original. Um, so that's. The Are you buying that, Sousa? That's some tricky shit he just said. Well, the, the I, blockchain, I, mean, I think, is what matters there because that seals the contract and then mints it as yours. Right. So that's what makes it there. But it takes a little bit to wrap your head around it, right? Well, I mean, like, I mean, think about the board apes right now. So a board ape, you've seen these little pictures, right? Mm -hmm. Can you pull one up, Susan? I don't know what he's talking about. Okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Those things go for $300,000. That's wow. how it costs to buy one of those. 
but anybody could just right click that board ape and, and have that picture, right? You could you could just save that picture on your phone right now. And you didn't pay any money for it, right? Right. But the original still costs three hundred thousand dollars. And that's what's intriguing about this is even though it's an image that is copyable, you're not actually copying the rights that what what makes it unique, which is it's logging onto the blockchain. These are the board apes. And these things are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, the originals. Um, so it's kind of intriguing. It's like each one is a work of art that you can own, that you can trade instantly, that you can use you know, as your avatar or whatever you want, that holds value the same way any cryptocurrency holds value. Um, Man, they're yeah. cool. Who made those? Um, the board game is a, it's worth billions now, the company. There, there's a company, I don't know who the specific artist is. Um, but now th- these have become like a status symbol to some degree. You own a board ape. There are DJs that are just board apes now, right? There's a whole industry building around this. Um, I was interviewed the other day on a podcast by a board ape. <laughs> so it was literally. Oh yeah. I saw that. I was wondering what that is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's what it is. And so it's, 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 it's a community. The whole point of it is community um, that, you know, the people who own board apes um, are part of a group of, of people who figured out a way into it and now have access to each other and things like that. So um, it's intriguing. The NFT community, I think NFTs are going to explode over the next year, like become a mega, mega, mega business. Every brand is thinking about how to get into it. Hollywood is trying to figure out how to get into it. The NBA and the MLB and NFL are all getting into, um, because it's, it's, it's like trading cards. We used to collect trading cards. Now you're going to trade, trade them digitally. Um, But they're worth more because they're, unique you know you're, you're unique the same way that trading cards were unique but you could trade them online instantly uh, ben um yeah. i could be like uh the difference between the mona lisa and i don't know what i'm talking about but bear with me here the difference between the mona lisa hanging in the louvre um and and uh and and the one in your dorm room is that the one in the um hanging in the museum um has a a a, a a fingerprint on it where he accidentally fell on the painting. Well, it has some of his wife's menstrual blood in the signature. It's like it's caked and thick. There's a story behind it where you know. And yeah, but the original NFT has a log on the blockchain. A, a very, okay, so that's it. Uh, yeah, and and that's that that's the signature basically. That's the the sign of it um, that you can't recreate. You know, you can't. You can only there's only one original. Um, or if you minted ten, there's ten. I mean, it depends on how the NFT right. got to do it. But similarly to the Mona Lisa, there's one original Mona Lisa. There can be a thousand exact replicas of that. And and and, and they're getting better and better. Replicas are getting closer and closer to re- exact, right? Um, so, you know, it doesn't diminish the value of the original. The authenticity is what you're paying for. Can um, you tell an original, um, no. your board ate from, the, from a right clicker? No. It would, be, no. it would be exactly the same, except you could see it on the blockchain, though. Remember, the blockchain is open. So anybody could go look at that and know that that you have the original one. Um, they know, you know, your wallet basically is seeable, but only get intable by you. So yeah, so the way crypto works, it's like it's it's um, you can't copy bitcoins, right? You can't create bitcoins. But each one is logged on the blockchain. Um, similarly, you can't create an exact replica of the original, even though it can look like it. It's not going to have that blockchain connection. 
Exactly. It's almost safer because inside the blockchain is where the value is stored. So although I could recreate this Mona Lisa and maybe sell it to somebody as a fake and they think it's the real, with the actual exchange of money happened, I've ripped them off. But the blockchain eliminates that from happening because the contract is stored within there and it's open. Anybody could see where it went. And right. no traded it hand with. Fake board eight. That would be impossible. Right. Um, you would know the real board eight. Well, so, someone could sell you a fake Mona Lisa. And in right. fact, the way things are going right now, a forger could potentially make an exact replica of the Mona Lisa. Right. Um, that is possible. Yeah. But you couldn't um, replicate, uh, you know, an NFT. Right, right. It'd be impossible. So it's actually a safer stored value of the asset. Well, than it would you're be. in the NFT game. Are you, uh, are you a collector? <laughs> no, no. I just try to be familiar with it. That's all. <laughs> um. Since you put out your own NFT, was putting out your own NFT like part of like this amazing learning curve? Like, yeah. So I was looking at so the Winklevoss twins sort of introduced me to this world. They they are big into this. They own a company that does this, and they were talking to me about how the future of everything of art of writing of music it's really going to be in this NFT space because it gives the artist, the creator, the musician um, the ability to. To, to own this, to make money off of it without having a middleman the same way crypto does, um, to create a whole community around your art or whatever it is, and that funds it, that's incentivized to make it succeed. So it's pretty intriguing from an artist's point of view. Um, and so I looked at it and I was like, should I write about this? Am I going to do a book about this? Am I going to write a movie about this? There's been so lots of great stories in this, in this realm. Um, and then I started to think, I, I started to think about it in a different way. I was approached by a couple people who are big in this space, who said, you know, you should really just drop an NFT um, and, 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 and see if your writing community is interested in it. And then we came up with the idea, let's take it a step further and let them have a piece of the movie I'm going to write. Um, and so we might even fund the movie via NFTs, have the community own the movie as a whole, um, have a big movie premiere. If the movie does, oh, that well, would be so the community cool. will be generating the revenue from it. And so it's a really cool idea. And, and, and so the first drop was, you know, an experiment and it sold out almost instantly. We sold out our 6,000 pieces very quickly. And then the discord grew from a few hundred people to eight or 9,000 people in a week with no publicity, no pumping, nothing like that. So I know we're on to something interesting and hopefully it'll continue to grow. And my goal is to launch other authors on the platform. So have other authors come and the Ben FT, we're calling it Ben FTs or <laughs> Ben FT, friends with Ben FTs. Uh, if you have a NFT, it'll give you entrance to the next author, and hopefully we'll build on this, and author, other big authors will come on, launch an NFT, maybe tie it to a book, um, tie it to a movie, tie it to a television show. And I really see this as becoming a real way of, of making art. Um, I could write a book rather than going to a traditional publisher and sell 5,000 NFTs around it uh, and then publish the book to the NFT holders. Um, yeah, I love that. And so, yeah. you know, I think podcasting, all of this stuff is going to move into the NFT space eventually because it, it's a much smarter, better revenue stream. And it incentivizes the people who like your stuff to push your stuff um, yep. because they own it. All right. They, they the want idea the effect. to go up. Um, they want they bought these, these little pictures that, and they know the value of those will go up if my books do better. Mm -hmm. um, right. So it's a really interesting, interesting dynamic. And as an author, it gives me the ability to have this group of a few thousand people that I can talk to daily. And I go on the Discord. I'm on there all the time telling stories or asking questions or they're telling me things. And it, you can't usually communicate with your audience like that 
as an author. Um, as an author, you go to a book signing and there's 20 people there, right? Um, and even if you go on Twitter, you're, it's like a megaphone. You know, you're speaking to a thousand people, but it's not, they don't have access to you and you don't have access to them. This is very different. And, and I know they're there for the right reasons because they own a piece of it. Um, right. And so, you know, they, they put a few hundred dollars into this. Um, it's, it, it matters to them. So I love it. I, I've been having a blast with it. And, uh, and um, people can buy them on, on OpenSea and then be a part of it. Um, and, and as we move forward, if this works, I foresee doing books this way, um, movies this way, TV this way, and, uh, and seeing how it goes. It, um, in one of your interviews, you talk about how you have 10,000 subscribers on Discord. I'm not really sure how Discord works, but yeah. and you talk about the power of that. When we would – when when I was running the media um, department for at CrossFit Inc., we, every year we would release a documentary that would cover our CrossFit games. And because the community was so ravenous, we would put it on iTunes or on Netflix, and it would skyrocket to number one, and it would be, it, it would stay there um, for for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And even with the, the documentaries or anything that won the Academy Award, couldn't push it out, or even Marvel movies couldn't push it out of the number one because our community was so ravenous. Even though it's not as big as the Marvel universe, not not even one percent, because our community was so ravenous, they would buy it. And they would keep it up there and it would be, it would be like this feeding frenzy. And I, and I, when you said that, I just love that because if you're 10,000 people pre-order your book on Amazon. It's, it's enormous. I mean, that's the yeah. cool thing and the crazy thing. The book industry works in very small numbers. You know, it's not like a movie comes out and a million people have to see the movie for it to be even a right. moderate success in the book industry. If a million people bought a book, it's like the biggest book of the year, right? Right. Um, 10,000 people is a very large number. So we'll see. Especially in a week, especially in a week, right? If you can incentivize 10,000 people to buy your book or talk about your book, I mean, and not even just buy it, but go on Twitter or whatever and, and tweet about it. Or it's, it's enormous. Um, and so I do think this is a great model um, for, for industries like publishing where there's just not that many readers, unfortunately. Um, so if you can have 10,000 excited people around a project, it's, it's going to be a big deal. Um, so I do think it's, it's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's a community that's really passionate about something is more valuable and more powerful than anything else. And that's what I learned writing the GameStop book. You know, a few million people on Reddit moved all of wall street for a couple of days. I mean, it was, it turned GameStop into the biggest company in the world um, for, because they were angry <laughs> because they were right. pissed off of wall street. And, yeah. and that's the power of NFTs as well. If you get can, a thousand people into it, you know, you can do a lot. Can you pull up that book, uh, Matt, the anti, anti-social network? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I can't wait to read this. Uh, yeah. Um, this uh, is a fascinating story. It's when I hear- story. And it was just a year ago um, when it all happened and it was just wild. I mean, a group of people sitting at home in the pandemic, you know, angry as hell, um, saw Wall Street trying to screw over GameStop, right? Which was a company that maybe shouldn't exist anymore, right? But we all love it. Uh, those of us who grew up gaming, I went to GameStop all the time and uh, go with my kids. I don't want to see it fail. And so when they saw that a hedge fund was shorting it, a group of people on Reddit just to said, we're going to all buy this stock. And they sent the stock all the way to 500, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is completely insane. Of course, then Robinhood stepped in and screwed everybody. Um, right. Plug on, on the you, side of it. And, and that's all in the story. But 
Yeah. You had a great explanation of that, by the way. Hey, here's another thing, guys. I guarantee you, if you don't know what shorting means, if you read this book, you will then now know what shorting means. If you heard about Robin Hood and, and them screwing the people, if you read this book, you'll hear another perspective that I thought was fascinating in one of your podcasts about how they Robin Hood basically had to shut down, whether you want to believe it or not, they had to shut down because they couldn't pay the 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 collateral day rate that they needed because of the two-day delay in the purchase. But yeah. – Man, these books are so great, and and you're making me really want to release an NFT for no other reason than just I need to learn what it is. And if yeah. you if you it's kind of like um some things you just have to do CrossFit. I, I encourage you to do CrossFit too, Ben. There, there's there's this huge misconception about it, but if you were to walk into a gym and do some CrossFit, you'd be like, oh shit. Yeah, this is yeah. totally oh, this is totally different than I ever thought it was. It's it, I mean it's it's one of the gnarliest communities I think on the planet. These people are all overachievers who just who take personal responsibility and personal accountability and want to get better. Nice. And they're in and, and they're in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is that whole NFT thing. I just love that you're doing that. That's yeah. I mean, it is a learning experience. It's funny because uh, younger people get it much quicker than older people. And so it sure. has been an awesome learning experience. I, I've told the story before, but my dad is 80. And he's right. like, why do people buy this? I don't even understand. <laughs> but my kid is 11 and he's in the other room playing Fortnite, buying clothes for his Fortnite character. Right. Yeah, crazy. Like, crazy. He yeah. automatically gets it. It's not even a question. He wants an NFT for his birthday. Um, so uh, this is what's coming. You know, you definitely know the next generation coming up that has grown up on video games and in the virtual world absolutely understands it instinctively why NFTs are valuable and why they're going to be important. So I do think it's worthwhile to learn about that world. And and uh, and it's cool. It's fun. That's the other thing that people don't necessarily get when they just look at it from an economic point of view. It's really fun, like bouncing around these discords and talking to people and figuring out what's cool and what's not. And by the way, there's tons of like scams and rug pulls and, and a lot of dirty crap going on there that you have to be wary of. Um, people getting... You know, that's part of the fun of understanding the pitfalls. There's so many fake things that pop up one day and they try to sell you an NFT and then the next day they're gone. Um, so you have to know which projects are real and which ones aren't. Um, so it's interesting. That's that's for sure. Yeah, the community aspect that you have around it, I think, is really smart because there's already a proven concept with right. the ownership, which is IKEA. Because why in the world would you buy something and then spend the time putting it together? But we know that as human beings, if we had an effort in building it, I built that. Look at what I did. So I value it more than right. it would have been valued without. Yeah. So I really yeah. like that I mean, concept. It's, it's, it's key. It's key to all of this stuff. And I really believe that value is now based on community, not on, on anything else. Yep. So like what Wall Street didn't necessarily understand about GameStop was that the fundamentals of the company didn't matter anymore. What mattered was the community that wanted it to succeed. So you didn't have to just look at who's the CEO or the bank, you know, bank notes or all this stuff. What you really had to understand where there were a million people who want this company to succeed. That's where the power is. Yep. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's that's the same thing with NFTs. It's not important what the picture is necessarily or what you're actually getting. It's important that there's a million people who want it to succeed. Um, and they all had a piece of the pie. Yeah. They all had a yeah. um, piece right. of making it succeed. Yes, self-incentivized. It's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Th this YouTube station, this podcast only has 10,000 subscribers, the one you're on right now. I mean, that's and, a, yeah. and, and people in the space who have 300,000 subscribers who are in my space or 100,000 subscribers, they're terrified of me. And they're terrified because those 10,000 people are savages because we have a community. 
we're really, really tight knit. And so like, I'll have these big UFC champions on and then they'll text me on the side and be like, holy shit, I've been on podcasts. I have 3 million subscribers. I've never had so many people land in my DMs wishing me good luck. Sure. And it's really interesting. Uh, communities are, it, it, you know, it, it, communities are fascinating. I mean, that's great. And I agree with it. Like what I'd rather have 10,000 people who are really into what I'm doing than a million people who just walk through, you know, because yeah, and yeah. that's the difference, by the way, between a Twitter following and a discord built around NFTs um, or, you know, it's, it's, a, yeah. it doesn't matter that you have, I mean, you see people on Twitter with a, a million followers and they tweet something and they get 30 <laughs> likes, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Those people aren't really there for you. And, yeah. and that's the important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And in the book industry, 10,000, uh, if you have 10,000 people who are really into your books, you are, can have best-selling books. Yeah, um, isn't that Seth Godin? Ten thousand true yeah. believers or ten thousand true yeah. fans, and that's, that's where. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I'm gonna say something a little hard, <clears throat> a little harsher right here, but that's the difference between a, a, a female who has a million followers because she's barely clothed on her Instagram, and a woman who has a million followers who's rarely taken off her clothes. I guarantee you that those million followers follow the woman who's rarely taken not that i have any problem with women taking off their clothes i think the female form <laughs> is beautiful i think more people should do it i fucking encourage it I, women are i mean men too everyone should be taking off their clothes but there is there is a substance issue there that will um that has more depth to people who if you've earned those million followers by keeping your clothes on mostly and, and you'll get a different quality not quality that's not fair you get a different, different kind reason. yeah did, did did your brothers marry jews <laughs> that's a great question what, what kind of uh, my, uh, my younger brother wife converted okay my wife converted my no shit brother. your wife converted yeah Tanya's Jewish yes wow she's a she's a Jew yeah <laughs> we are we are um, she did it when she was nine months pregnant with my son um, interesting enough her parents were like you should convert and it's funny because they grew up Christian and going to church very religious but they were like, you know, be what your family is. Uh, it'll make things easier and life easier. And and um, she converted. I mean, we're not, you know, religious, uh, but we are. But you light a menorah. You do. You do. Like oh, my yeah, wife. My wife's Jewish. We we light a menorah. We light a menorah and a Christmas tree. We do an Easter egg hunt. We do Passover. We do it all. Listen, I'm I'm all yeah. for everything. I, I want. Your kids get shitload of presents. Like my kids get a present <laughs> every day of Hanukkah, and then they get Christmas. Yeah. They fucking hate Christians because Christmas is only one day. It's kind of fucked up, but. <laughs> It's too much. But I, you know, by the end of the Hanukkah Christmas season, my kids are like ruined because they <laughs> present every day for the rest of the month. So bad. Horrible. Um, yeah, we do it all. Um, I, I, you know, my son, will, well, the kids will get bar mitzvah. Um, but I'm my parents' generation. Judaism was heavy because they came out of the Holocaust. You know, their families came out of their parents. Their parents did such a number on them that Judaism was not easy. Um, so when I grew up, my dad. Judaism was a much scarier, intense Judaism than my Judaism. Mine is like, have fun, you know, whatever. Um, it's it's good food and bagels and things like that. So, yes. Um, but, yeah, my brothers uh, both are with Jewish people now, yeah. And um, do you, how, how old were you when you got married? Old. Um, I was in my, gosh, I got married in 2007. That seems about right. So, so I 14 was, years ago. Yeah, that sounds right. 14 or 15. I think I'm 15. at 38, maybe uh, approaching 40 when you got married. Yes. 38, 39. Yeah. And did you already have a kid kid with her? No, no, no. So it was funny. I, I met my wife and we dated a long time. I think seven years before we got married. And 
I was like postponing and stalling. And I was like, uh, first I was like, I'm not going to get married until I make the New York Times bestseller list. And then I like made the bestseller list. I, like, uh -oh. uh -oh. <laughs> I thought that was going to take a lot longer. Um, Move the goalpost. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, you know, I was afraid of, of, of all of that, of, of like settling down of the idea of like, what would it do to my writing? Would you know, but the reality is it was so much better. Um, so um, yeah, so I, I, I have been married uh, in 15 years now, I guess. And yeah. The the idea of getting married is insane. It's like going into a room and locking the door. I mean, th theoretically, like why would you do that? Why yeah, would I go I mean, into a room and lock the? What I don't even want to close the fucking door. My office it's freezing outside. My office door is open. I can see the outside <laughs> world. Like I like why would I lock the door? But I didn't get married. I was with. I told my wife we didn't get married for like twenty years. I'm never getting married, and I'm never fucking having kids. And then she then when she was thirty nine, she's like, "Hey, I want one." And yeah. I was like, "Yeah, sure." Like now we got money, we'll do whatever. And <laughs> And then we ended up with three kids and then, and then we got married and I'm so glad we got married, but I was the same way. I think the same way as you it didn't make it. It doesn't make any sense to get married. Yeah. Until you I, do. I and now I'm glad I did. It's a, I'm a fearful person in general. Let's put it that way. I'm just uh -oh. with everything. I'm a, I'm a hypochondriac. I'm a anxiety ridden, fearful, you know, oh no. Like stereotypical, like, yeah. <laughs> but when I write my books, I go and do very dangerous things and I hang out with really crazy over the top people. But in my real life, like, you know, lot. So every, any change I fear, let's put it that way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it ended up being a great, great situation. So yeah. have you ever made yourself cry writing? Like you killed a character or something happened no, and you start crying. I, you're I, like, I'm what the cry? I mean, I've definitely, um, no, it's all positive for me. <laughs> There's never been like, I don't, I'm not that type of writer, I think. Um, so no, never, never really got, I've gotten like positive emotions and gone, wow, this is awesome. Like excited and stuff like that, but never kind of the negative stuff. Did your parents think that you weren't going to, were they getting concerned? Yeah. Like, I think my, I think my wife's parents wanted her to marry a Jew and my parents wanted me to marry an Armenian, but there was a, a certain point came where they're like, fuck it, just get married. Someone get married. No, my, Someone my, have a kid. My parents uh, were like, if you marry, they were going to give uh, Tanya a car if she converted. Like It was like, they, <laughs> they, they, they tried to like sneak it on us. So when, when I was, I was never, when we were dating, they were like already starting to put the pressure on about the conversion thing. Um, so they originally, yes, they wanted me to marry someone Jewish. Then the conversion idea got into their head and they were like, okay, that's fine too. Um, they even like, I remember that we had been dating for a long time and we were got engaged and my mom was like, I found the perfect rabbi for you. And she even set up the rabbi. And it was one of those rabbis who will only marry you if you're already converted. Wow. <laughs> so it was like this little trick to try and get my wife to convert. But we didn't end up going with that rabbi. Um, but yeah, it, uh, yeah, my parents really, whatever, whatever reason wanted us all to be married to Jewish people. Yeah. Did you, um, do you have to wa go ahead. I didn't care. I mean. I'm not religious. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it's all fine. I'm, I, I think that everybody should do whatever they want. And I don't have any problem marrying non-Jews. It just ended up that way. Yeah. What is your wife? What, what, what's her ethnicity? So her family's from Taiwan originally. Um, so Chinese going back, um, but Taiwanese, native Taiwanese. So way back, they were kind of revolutionaries who her father procured the gun that was used in the assassination attempt of the president of Taiwan, who was a pro-China Taiwan. So they were, they were wow. like devils. So he actually, they live in Louisiana because he was, he escaped Taiwan and was 
placed by the, you know, the CIA in Louisiana or to be in hiding. So they end up, she grew up in like backwoods swamp country, Natchitoches, um, Louisiana, and then came to Boston for college. So, um, yeah. Does she have a twang? She, when I first met her, she had a Southern accent. Yes, it was very <laughs> cool. Um, but she, now it only comes out when she drinks. Yeah, it doesn't, uh, not, not, not current, not often. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's very beautiful, by the way. Yeah, she's, a, she's, she's uh, amazing. And, um, you know, she, uh, when she was in uh, dental school, she was modeling on the side. Then she got into acting a little bit and had a TV show in Boston for a number of years um, on on the NECN, which was a, a local station in Boston, where she did a, was on the morning show for a while and then had a show on uh, um, about philanthropy and, and parties and, and fashion. So she was a fashion designer for a while. And, and um, yeah, so she's done a lot of cool things. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, um, Ben. We've had you for an hour and 47 minutes. Amazing. I think it's my longest podcast ever. And I appreciate it. It was fun. You guys I, talk a lot about a lot of cool stuff. And uh, I, I love being able to talk about all the stuff that I don't normally talk about. So that was really cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I, I, I dumped you into my Google alerts. I'll be following you as close as I can follow any human being uh, outside of my kids and my wife. Um, That's thank great. you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. Uh, the new book. Can we see it one more time, Sousa? Yep. The new book comes out February 22nd. It yep. is called uh, Midnight Ride. The Midnight Ride. And it's a Da Vinci Code style thriller. I think people will like it. All of the history and stuff is all kind of real research stuff. So it's going to kind of blow your mind if you thought you knew what happened in the Revolutionary War. It's going to kind of change some of your perceptions. But um, it's a really fun story. And I'm hoping I'm doing the sequel right now, which will come out a year later. And we're going to do a movie as well. So if um, if you want to check it out, check it out. And uh, yeah, it should be out in bookstores. You can pre-order it now on Amazon or anywhere you want and come find me on Twitter or, or, or yeah, just that's probably Twitter or discord. And I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Ask me whatever you want. And uh, the NFT project is um, just the Ben Mesrick project. And um, again, find me on Twitter or discord and, and ask any questions you want. So I was lucky that I found you on Instagram. Yeah, I'm on Instagram now a lot more though. So yeah, okay. cool. When I don't know how long it took me to respond to you because I don't look at it quite as much. <laughs> it took a while. It took a while. I thought, oh shit, this guy's no, not responding. I, I I love Instagram. I love putting pictures up, but I but I put pictures up and then I look at pictures, but I barely look at anything else. And then I don't even notice I have messages because I don't use it. And then I'm like, oh crap, I have all these messages. And I <laughs> at it. Um, I, I love Instagram. I do, but I just have I've been focused on Twitter um, for whatever reason. And um, yeah, I should look at Instagram more though. It is really cool. The, um, so if anyone who's who's listening, I, I, I can't recommend enough uh, uh, Bitcoin Billionaire. It is the book that I read. Um, tonight I'm going to finish the second half of uh, The Social Network, the movie. And then I'm actually, right when I'm done with that, I am going to dive right into the um, ant, anti, anti-social. Anti yeah. yeah. Check it out because we're making the movie this spring, summer um, to be out next fall. So. Um, check out that book. It's a really cool story. Um, so yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. I'm going to try and check out CrossFit now. I want to, I want to <laughs> learn more. I want to learn more, um, about it. Go with your wife. Yeah. Go now before it gets like a weak person like me could physically do it. 
Oh no, they'll take care of you. Go go check out a few of them. Find one with a great coach. They'll scale everything down. They'll make it as easy as a possible as an as an entryway in for you. And uh, I guarantee it, you'll you'll like it. And then circle back around for us for the uh, twelve part series. Okay. Oh yes. Oh yeah, Ben. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. If you ever like, you want a unique excuse to come to Santa Cruz, California, and yeah. you want to talk, and you want to like, and you want to uh, write it off, you can come, and I'll and I'll pitch you on this. Uh, show you my my book of. Sex I mean, lives. I know this is a great story there. That's awesome. So you should definitely get it out there. I bet, especially if you've got a, a audience. Nah, I keep my friends. I keep my friends. I'm gonna keep my friends. You got a, a, a tea party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the good stuff. But anyways, listen. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, and uh, I'll look into that stuff. So and we'll be in. Man. We'll be in touch. We'll be bugging you. Oh, you have a Yahoo email account. That's that's for the next episode. No, no, AOL. 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 Yeah, AOL. Even worse. Even worse. <laughs> AOL. I'm way back in the. I wish I still had my old. CompuServe. <laughs> 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 yeah.